create organisms that survive on Mars and, and do the exploration for us uh, even before we go there. So you, you can think about developing these uh, new species or new organisms. Um, you know, that's still, you know, kind of like sci-fi, but, but at least we will develop the know-how to get there um, and, and to do those things. Interesting. So you, you, you create a new organism, uh, give it the powers of uh, GPT-4, and then just leave it in, in space. So this brings to our uh, the the other topic that we wanted to talk about, right? So which is about um, how do these genes express themselves into mm. you know how how do they get their function? So they get their function in the body through proteins, right? And one of the bigger um, developments that has happened in the last five years is the is the development of um, AlphaFold, right? So this mm. uh, software program AI AI approach to predict how the structure can be predicted based on just the sequence, right? So can you tell us more about that, Sam? Yeah, What's the implication of that and actually did, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, go, let's uh, build upon the analogy we talked about how CRISPR is a, a, an innate immune system for bacteria. And the mm -hmm. way bacteria right. does its uh, innate immunity is by retrieving that memory it created mm -hmm. and using that memory to find an exact match in the invading phage and then kill that phage. Mm. Now, yeah. how does human memory work? How does, um, you know, human biology, uh, our immune system work? Well, the idea is similar. We create a copy of the invading pathogen in the body mm -hmm. so that our subsequent infections by the same pathogen um, can be alleviated. And the way that happens is the record is actually not directly um, like the bacterial record. Uh, yes, there is a DNA record, but the actual record is a protein record. Okay, mm -hmm. so the way we build that record uh, in our uh, immune system is by our immune cells uh, detecting a, a pathogen, but then storing that information in the in 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 the DNA. But the information that is stored is a particular sequence of protein that was able to bind the invading pathogen. And, and so we are creating a, a memory, a DNA memory of a protein space. Because for us, we use proteins to detect and destroy the invading phage. And the idea is that, you know, because proteins are kind of like um, already expressed and they are ready to act. So we get a faster, quicker response, um, et cetera. And so, so and, and you could do a lot more crazy things with proteins than with nucleic acids. And, and so see. now, so, how, yes. Just to stop you there. Um, so is this how actually um, the, the new vaccines, right? The, the RNA-based vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, for instance, for COVID, is this how yeah. they were developed as well? Yeah, so all vaccines so far uh, that we have, they use this phenomenon. The way our mm -hmm. immune system recognizes invading phage is if that immune system is primed to the invading um, particles. And the way we prime the immune system, we could do it in many ways. We could use uh, what we call live attenuated vaccine. So, for example, uh, we weaken the virus and then we introduce that. Uh, to the body right. so that that virus that was introduced into the body wouldn't have much of a, a potency 
to kill human cells, but would have enough of um, substance with it so that our immune system can be primed, so that our immune system can potentially find ways to bind those viral particles and make a record of that in their DNA. Right. Now, right. likewise, RNA vaccines also prime our human system, but they do it in a little different of a fashion, but they express that invading pathogens protein in the body. And that gives mm -hmm. us the opportunity to prime ourselves against that protein so that when the actual infection happens, um, we can use the record to uh, detect that pathogen. I see. I see. So what's interesting now, yeah, what's interesting now was I made this comment that proteins, we could do a lot more with proteins than with DNA. And that's why yeah. we believe higher multicellular organisms develop this protein-based immune system. And the reason is because mm. DNA or RNA use four nucleotides to, um, to encode the information. But right. proteins, we have um, 20 amino acids, uh, which function as modular units to make up the proteins. And we I have see. very different chemistry that each of these amino acids can do. Uh, some amino acids are acidic, some are basic, some can accept mm -hmm. electrons, some can release electrons. And so you could imagine that the complexity of the functionality of a protein is humongous because it can do all kinds of new chemistry that was not possible by nucleic acids. And therefore mm -hmm. our immune system is so much more advanced. But then because of its advance, we couldn't just infer the functionality of a protein by sequencing it. I see. Because we had to have a way to map the biochemical function to the sequence space. And that mm -hmm. was very hard. Uh, and, and we still struggle to develop that information. If you give me a sequence of amino acids and you ask me what biochemical function could this sequence of amino acids perform, it is still a mystery. We do not know what a particular sequence of amino acids are capable of doing. And, and right. this is where AlphaFold really uh, comes in a big way, where um, even though it's not generative in the sense that, hey, if I want a particular biochemical function, spit me out mm -hmm. <laughs> a sequence of amino acids that could perform that function, it comes very close right. in the sense that if you tell me a sequence of amino acids that you are interested in studying, it could tell us how this sequence of amino acids arrange themselves, whether certain amino acids are going to be close to each other or far from each other, etc. which we think is a big step forward because it is the arrangement of these amino acids that has a major component in its function. And so now what we are able to do is have a sequence of amino acids and we are able to say, this is how they are arranged. And most likely, this is the function they might perform because we have some idea of how arrangements of amino acids uh, can have certain functions in the body or uh, in biochemistry. So that's kind of a big step forward for us with AlphaFold, um, where we are able to go from sequence to structure, um, which is which right. is the last link before sequence to function. Um, sure. and, and yeah, so, but this has been a, a big problem because we, we didn't know if you give us a, a sequence, what structure that protein would adapt. Right. Sam, quick question, just to make sure I want to touch upon what you said. So you said that DNA is coded in a language that has four letters in the alphabet, if you will. 
right? Yes. So the entire language of DNA is in like a, it's basically four letters that are, that are forming words and sentences and whatever. And proteins are written in a language that has 20 letters in the alphabet, which is the yes. 20 amino much, acids. Much like English, yes. So closer to English. So this is more like almost like binary. So the DNA is almost like some yes. binary sequence, double the number of digits. But so what, why is this is just that itself, right? Like, what does that mean? Why are we going from like a four letter language to a 20 letter language? Why not just store it in the 20 letter language directly? What is the benefit of like having this intermediary thing that converts from one language to another? That just seems bizarre and wasteful. Yes. So spot on. Um, it so if you think about proteins as storing information, um, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there was this hypothesis in the past before we realized that DNA was was the material that stores information. People thought that proteins store information, that we pass hereditary traits from parents to children through protein. And there are one or two diseases that actually happen that way where you know because of a faulty protein uh, we actually have a child that is also sick and it's the protein that is conveying that information but for the most part biology doesn't use protein to store information uh, the information is always mm -hmm. stored as dna but proteins are yeah. only employed to perform biochemical tasks uh, whether it is to um, break down glucose uh, into carbon dioxide and energy, uh, whether it is to uh, pass electrical signals in the body so we could compute, uh, whether it is to release sweat uh, when we find our body is hot. Uh, all, all biochemical work in the body is employed, most of it. You know, there are cases where RNA does some of that, but most cases is done by protein. And we believe that, that the reason why we needed a complex language that employs 20 alphabets is because um, we could cover different kinds of biochemical reactions. We could come, we could we could do oxidation reactions. We could do reduction reactions. We could do um, electron transfers. We could do uh, hydrogen transfers. We could transfer methyl groups and and all kinds of the whole spectrum, the whole gamut of biochemical reactions can be performed. And by the way, now we with synthetic biology. We are able to expand the alphabet. We are able to now say, hey, let's, let's add more protein, amino acids. Let's create novel amino acids that have novel functionality that is not present in existing biology. And so you could imagine that you are able to do new biochemistry um, uh, where maybe you could uh, start developing dragons that spit out fire <laughs> and, and things like that uh, because now you have this new amino acids that can maybe generate fire in the body and not get burned, you know, things like that. Yeah. So one more thing I took away from what you said is that while DNA, you know, it's only like these four letters in the alphabet and it, the structure is fixed. It's always a double helix. What you yes. said about proteins is that proteins don't have a definite structure. There are these long strands. And in fact, the, the structure of the protein itself is variable. So knowing the sequence of amino acids or like the letters of the alphabet in like, you know, composing the protein is not sufficient information to be able to know what the structure of the protein is. You need to know some notion of the protein structure in addition to the sequence. Yes. Especially and that is the biggest difference, right? Between proteins yes. And, okay. Right. And in fact, they talk about how... It's not a sequence of just the, a strand, but how they fold, yeah. right? So how they 
compress themselves and how they fold is what matters, right? So what bases get exposed outside. Yeah. And there are examples where you could almost have the same sequence of amino acids and you get a totally different mm. function uh, by how it folds. And 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 um, and we suspect that's what's happening in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, where we have just a couple of proteins that um, have a change in their fold. And once the change in the fold happens, they keep aggregating, and that's why we get plaques uh, in the in the brain. And and so a certain class of uh, clinical trial compounds that are being tested for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are trying to um, bind proteins with a specific fold. Um, and leave the proteins that don't have that fold. And so if you could inhibit that folding, potentially you can cure the disease or at least uh, stop it from spreading. So you're saying that the DNA is almost like a linear molecule in the sense that it's always just a straight line and like the structure doesn't matter, whereas protein is like a three-dimensional molecule. And so well, like, therefore you know, the, the actual, the bending and the folding like matters more than, than in this case. Yes. You know, I, w- I would say that the DNA structure matters as well because, you know, um, our current research shows that, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have a DNA as, as long as the football field, you know, if you were to talk right. about the linear structure of the DNA, but then right. we, right. it is packed and it is compacted into chromosomes mm-hmm. and it is then put in the nucleus in, in the cell. Right. But we do mm-hmm. believe that there is a specific, um, method to that madness of the folding of the DNA. Uh, the way it is mm. compacted, the way it is organized into chromosomes actually enables mm-hmm, yes. the development of the human body. Uh, we could, for example, play around changing the fold uh, of the DNA and we realize that the cells or the embryos don't develop as they normally should develop, giving rise to organs, right. etc. And so the information in the DNA is not uh, accurately read and accurately processed if the folding is incorrect. And so there is I a little see. bit of importance in the folding, but not right. as terrible as, you know, the proteins, for example. And I guess it's rarer, right, to, to find um, mistakes mm. in how they fold. In the folding. Exactly. Right, right, right. And even, even the way the DNA is folded is the proteins that fold the DNA, the way it's supposed to be folded. <laughs> so you talked about how in protein folding, so you could have the same sequence of amino acids, but they could fold differently. Um, yes. So do they get affected by the environment, uh, the temperatures and so on? Is that yeah. how they get affected? How, how does that happen? You know, <laughs> this is a you know billion dollar question. How does very healthy mm. proteins um, that every person right. has give rise to Alzheimer's? That's that's right. the heart of the question. You know, what makes these proteins fold the way they do and create these mm-hmm. blocks? What makes a certain protein adapt to one structure to another structure? Um, that's a very important question. Now, we do know, for example, um, there are cases where certain things bind the proteins and change the structure. That's mm-hmm. how we have a sense of taste. You know, when we eat food, uh, we have molecules that are bound by the receptors on our tongue. And when those molecules bind the receptors, the receptors, which are proteins, they change their fold. They change their structure. And when they change their structure, they trigger reactions in the nerves that make us feel the sensation of the food that we've eaten. And so there is that dynamic changing and interplay of the structure folding and and, and refolding that's happening that gives rise to the biology that's important. There are also proteins that do not have any such change. You know, once they fold, they say static, 
and and they perform mm. their function without having any kind of change in their fold. And they just perform their function by taking one small molecule, breaking it down and converting it into another molecule like an enzyme or a catalyst, right? Uh, but uh, this biology of what gives rise to a particular fold for a protein is, uh, is, is still being investigated. We, do, we don't know. People thought that, well, it's got to be the mean free energy. Um, you know, if you think about uh, quantum mechanics, you know, in general, over time, our thermo, even, even th thermodynamics shows that, you know, molecules do adopt a low energy state over, over the course right. of time, you know, when they equilibrate. And so people thought, well, maybe protein molecules are these low energy states that they adopt to um, over the course of equilibrium. But if we found that, in fact, that's not the case. There are lower energy states a protein could adapt to, but it doesn't adapt mm -hmm. to that. It, it prefers to maintain a particular structure. And, and, and so then the idea was, well, maybe there are other proteins called chaperones that help it fold in a particular way and, and may keep that structure together. Maybe it's not just chaperones, but this protein binds many other proteins and keep it in that particular structure and, and, and maintain that structure. So there's many, many factors at play as to what exactly gives rise to a particular fold, a particular structure for a protein. Um, there are some proteins where you could be like, especially for smaller proteins, if it folds, this is a structure it will have. There is no question, no doubt about it. Mm. But that's not generally the rules. I see. I see. Got it. Got it. So when we talk about mutations, right? So let's say in, in movies like X-Men or, mm. um, or, you know, what happened in the, in this, uh, the TV show called The Last of Us, where the fungus mutates because of rising temperatures. So is this the kind of um, uh, mutation that we're talking about? So where the, maybe the proteins are folding in a different way, leading to some mutation? Yes. And, uh, you know, for example, we know cancers happen that way. You know, uh, it, uh, heavily, the, there's a lot of linkage between smoking uh, cigarettes to um, cancers of the lung. And, and we know mm. carcinogenics create those mutations. Uh, exposure to sun creates that mutation that makes a protein fold uh, in a different manner. Uh, we do know mm. um, sometimes a protein is not folded, but truncated. So instead of getting uh, the full length protein, you get half of the protein. And that doesn't uh, do the job it needs to do. And so very true, the mutations uh, change the protein. And when the protein is changed, mainly in the structure of the protein, um, the function is lost or a new function is gained. And, and we have this uh, aberrant phenotypes, uh, mainly re resulting in disease. Right. Is that how radiation affects as well? So when we say when a cell gets radiated, is this one of the things that gets changed? Exactly. So radiation right. uh, results in mutations. But I would also say, you know, you know, when we think of radiation, it's, we think of it as like a bad thing, right? Because, you know, it mutates our protein and, and, you know, we get all kinds of bad stuff happening in the body. But uh, if you look at just the genome sequences, you know, if we compare genome sequences of ourselves, they're mostly identical. But between, you know, between any two, like almost identical individuals, even like twins, right, identical twins, you find a lot of differences between uh, their, their actual DNA. And these are all these small, small mutations that happen in their DNA, which are which go unnoticed, which go undetected, uh, because those changes don't result in a disease. Those changes don't result in something bad happening to the human body. In fact, those changes probably are good because those help 
evolve uh, the person. Those help evolve the organism over time. And and so in some ways, having mutations is is a necessary evil, at least in terms of um, the way mm. evolution works, uh, to explore new proteins, to explore new designs, to explore new functionality, and better adapt to our changing environment, for example. That's amazing. And the way it works, I'm just trying to understand, is like when you do, when the mutation happens, is the mutation happening in the protein or in the DNA that's coding the protein? And like, how does that get transmitted from like one generation to another? So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, what mutations get transmitted? Well, a lot of mutations don't get transmitted. So, for example, you know, mm -hmm. uh, especially for higher uh, eukaryotes or mammalian systems or human beings, uh, the only things mm -hmm. that get translated are germ cells, uh, which are in the gonads. Um, and those cells, they also undergo mutations, but those are typically not mutated because of the sun. Those are not typically mutated because, you know, they're exposed to um, things outside. But they can still get mutated. You know, you eat things um, and, and they go in the body and then um, they are circulated in the blood. And those carcinogens can mutate what's happening in the gonads. And once you have your genetic material uh, mutated uh, in the germ cells, which are in the gonads, those are then trans transmitted to the offspring. And, and, and we could imagine even, you know, when we produce sperm, when we produce egg cells, uh, there is a chance of mutation. We have a, a normal mutation rate of roughly 10 to the minus seven per base. So, so I've said human, human DNA is about a gigabasis, right? And so if you look at a mutation rate of 10 to the minus seven, you could imagine that just by the normal process of reproduction, we introduce at least 100 to 1,000 changes of DNA that mm. we just transmit to, to the kids. And, and, and those are hopefully good changes. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, they do give rise to um, unexpected diseases. And, and that's why we have, you know, all kinds of maladies that come de novo, um, where the parents are like, oh, you know, I didn't carry this disease, but how come my kid has this? Mm. Or how come, you know, um, our posterity has this? But, but that's just the natural so process. And yeah. Will Spider-Man have like spider babies or like, is that dependent on like whether the spider genes like made it to his sperm cells? Yeah. If we, if we take that story, literally, um, it was an induced yeah. change. Uh, it wasn't a change right. in his gonads. Uh, so most likely right. not. I would expect yeah. as a scientist that Spider-Man would have regular babies, uh, but you know, okay. he might be smart enough to get his children bitten by spiders as well. And then he might be able to reproduce them. On the other hand, Hulk, right? So Hulk would have Hulk babies. Right? Yes, oh, exactly. Why is that? Yes. What is the difference? Tell me more. That's also an induced change, right? That also happens because of gamma radiation. Why is that different? But, but affecting all out of the body. Ah, oh, I see. So you're saying if the spider had bitten him down there, <laughs> there's a possibility that my kids might be Spider-Man. That's what you're saying is the difference. But if a spider has bitten him down there, most likely he wouldn't yeah. have it. But his kids would have it. Oh, Oh, interesting. <laughs> that is such a cool story. I think that has to be a separate comic. <laughs> yes. It's pretty amazing. Oh. I, th I think awesome. it's, it's the Incredibles, right? In the Incredibles, we see different uh -huh. people have different yeah. mutations in the family. And, and so maybe yes. something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm. even in X-Men, right? So you, you have uh, Magneto who can play around with the magnetism. But then right. uh, in a Wanda who was... Uh, you know, Magneto's daughter, right? So she has yeah. completely different powers. Yeah. Right? Magneto has a daughter. How did I miss the memo on this? I didn't know Magneto <laughs> has a kid. 
first Magneto's kid. Oh, wait, yeah. what? My first. goodness. Okay, who's yeah. the mom? <laughs> That's a separate episode we got to do with something. Like human. Mom to regular yeah. human. Regular human. Okay, okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, Sam. So thanks for taking us through CRISPR and also AlphaFold. Now, yeah. I know this area is so rapidly evolving. But how do you see, let's say, five years from now, ten years from now? Are there any any things in progress that would show up? Yeah, that would I change mean, the world. The immediate applications would be curing diseases, uh, uh, especially at the moment we are looking at diseases that can be cured by changing just one or two or few nucleotides. And there are many diseases like right. that, sickle cell anemia, beta thalassemia. Uh, these are uh, diseases of the blood. And, and it's also very easy to cure diseases of the blood because you know, we can, we, we are pretty good at bone marrow transplantations. We are good at engineering blood cells. They're easy to extract from the body. And so immediate, I think within five to 10 years, you'll see a lot more therapies coming for diseases of the blood, cancers of the blood, um, mutations uh, of the blood that can be cured, um, etc. That'll be one right. main uh, focus of, uh, yeah, efforts. And um, speak, speaking of non-human uh, uh, works, you'll see a lot more genetically modified uh, foods, uh, genetically modified organisms um, out in the market. Um, obviously, I mean, it, it comes down to uh, the FDA approvals and having them uh, available to people. But but that's going to be, I mean, that's, that's the next revolution, uh, providing food for the masses, uh, mass producing um, uh, food, I think is going to be a big need for humankind as we grow in population. And and I think GMOs definitely are one way uh, to solve that problem. So we'll see a lot more of yeah. a revolution happening there as well. Uh, the other thing that I think will also happen is we will um, also develop more understanding of how biology works. And, and that's kind of what mm -hmm. we are learning from AlphaFold. Uh, we will learn to design better biological systems in general, uh, not just for producing food, et cetera, but also we, we, we would be able to answer questions such as, hey, you know, if I want a particular functionality, like we were talking about, you know, dragons that breathe fire, you know, we are able to answer right. those questions. We are able to say, hey, these are, this is how we go about building systems that way. Uh, you know, if you want a computer that can talk to a human, we kind of know how to do that today, uh, using our understanding from computer science and, and machine learning. Right. We will do the same with biological systems. You want to build an organism that could scavenge um, the Antarctic and, and tell us if there is anything interesting there. You could create an organism that can survive that temperature and that could go there and do all the scavenging for us. You could create organisms that survive on Mars and, and do the exploration for us uh, even before we go there. So you, you can think about developing these uh, new species or new organisms. Um, you know, that's still you know, kind of like sci-fi, but, but at least we will develop the know-how to get there um, and, and to do those things. Interesting. So you 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 create a new organism, uh, give it the powers of uh, GPT four, and then just leave it in in space, right? <laughs> yeah, and right. They would not to hurt you. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I you know, uh, yes. So uh, you know, if you talk about technological singularity, right? That could be one way. Uh, the technological singularity could happen. You know, we create something that we can't control, and then that can uh, come and haunt us back. Uh, but um, but that's where synthetic biology, I think, is also I think uh, an area of uh, great interest because, as I was mentioning earlier, we can create now proteins with extra amino acids that has never been seen uh, in nature until 
13 billion years of evolution. And so you are going to see these new kinds of uh, functional moieties that, that biological systems can uh, carry. And that's going to be exciting as well. And even to so give us... So just to build on that, so what's stopping us? Is it more investment needed or more energy or are there any, uh, you know, big computational problems that we have? So, for example, let's say if you are, if you are able to develop fusion, right, as an infinite source of energy, would yeah. that lead to acceleration of this process? So what's stopping yeah. us? You know, um, to be honest, I think the reason why innovation in biology is a little slow is because we do want to proceed with caution. And, and a lot of reason for that is, um, is it touches on a lot of ethical questions of what we think uh, should be tried and what we think shouldn't be tried. Um, you know, uh, we do know, for example, CRISPR can help us cure uh, all kinds of diseases. And so you could imagine um, that, uh, you know, an experiment like what was attempted in China, where there was a scientist who wanted to edit babies uh, as they're being born, uh, so that they wouldn't have a gene called CCR5, which is a gene that actually encodes um, the receptor for HIV virus. Now, we don't exactly know what all functions CCR5 does in the body, but this scientist had this idea that I'm going to test it out. I'm going to create a human being mm. that doesn't have CCR5. One thing we know for sure is that human being will be resistant to AIDS, HIV AIDS. Um, now, will that human being have other defects? I don't know, but I would only know unless I build that human. Right. So he went ahead, he edited the babies and it was a big news, etc. Wow. Now the question is, um, yeah, so is that is that an experiment we would want to try? Are those kinds of experiments that we would want to allow or not allow? And so that's that's the reason for caution in biology, because, you know, it, it touches a lot of these borderline ethical questions, um, unless the kinds like a nuclear fusion, you know, if we can guarantee that these experiments would not you know, explode and people would be safe, you know, conducted in a safe, controlled environment, we would get an approval for those experiments. But the questions of ethics and, and biology, those take hard time to resolve and, and to give us approvals for those kinds of experiments. And, and, I, and rightfully so, because I don't know if we have a straightforward answer for a question that, uh, like that. You know, we don't know what we might end up creating. And, and, and you know, if that person might you know, is that person fully human? Is that person not fully human? I mean, this this is just a, a whole plethora of questions that we need to answer in that space. So that is definitely one factor. Um, the other, I think, is um, at least until now, we haven't thought biology as an information science. And, and more and more, mm. uh, I think this adaption of uh, fr this framework of looking at biology as an information science, coming combining that with machine learning is definitely going to accelerate our understanding and definitely going to accelerate even the test, uh, you know, design build cycle of biological systems and, and make us also uh, move forward uh, as well in that sense. So Sam, on that front, right, like just to push that, uh, that, that kind of line of thinking, we're talking about obviously GPT-3 and all these advances in AI, like, could I now synthetically create like human brains without a body, just a bunch of human brains, hook them up and create like a, you know, human brain network that will probably work more efficiently than like any kind of machine we can build that does artificial, like we're talking about GPUs and how difficult it is to get the heavy metals mined in like countries in Africa to live with like child labor being employed. But if I could just get like, you know, hundred brains, like Einstein's brains, custom build the brains in the lab, 
and then use that as my computer to then run like all sorts of interesting ideas on it is that like now a possibility yeah so uh, there is there is some uh, uh, research in that space so you've heard of uh, neuralink uh, this was this company uh, elon was interested in but uh, anyway so long story short there is that idea of uh, interfacing um, human computation with uh, computation mm -hmm. we do in computers and and there is a lot of interest mm -hmm. uh, in in uh, in doing that there are some experiments that are exactly what you are describing where um, the people have essentially made neurons in the lab uh, we can do that thanks to stem cells now and then um, let the neurons form networks uh, spontaneously like they potentially mm -hmm. might do uh, in a developing body and then hook up electrodes to those neurons and then do some basic mm -hmm. computation and we were able to do some basic computation we were able to do basic arithmetic we were able to do like uh, logic um, and or not kind of logic uh, with these neural networks oh. and that was that was very interesting and that's a humble beginning and that's a humble start uh, we still um, you know neuroscience is still an area where we are trying to understand how is the human brain organized how does human brain keep track of time how does human brain uh, do all kinds of computation etc we 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 don't understand that yet but we think neural networks are getting there we we think that you know, with this idea of uh, studying AI and the responses to neurons, we can understand that. But those experiments are underway if we could build a, a better computer uh, by building neurons. Okay. I would say that still, I think, instead of approaching uh, neurons as a black box, instead of approaching the brain as a black box, I think a quicker mm. way is, um, is approaching it as an entity we understand and then delivering the signals we want to deliver kind of like what we did with computers we we understand the abstraction we understand layers mm. of uh, computation that we can build and i would assume that we might go faster uh, if we were to just build better computers than trying to program exactly mm. that's that's just my 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 hunch i might be wrong but that's just my my guess yeah yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating idea. I mean, the, the thing is, there's two like interesting caveats, right? So what is, I think, in the, if you look at the most lead, most recent advances in, in AI, like if you look at the, the neural network, right, the deep neural networks that exist today, part of it was what is fascinating is the person programming the neural network has no idea why it works, yeah, right? Exactly. So that's part of the, the interesting, like yeah. we've now come to this point where we went from deterministic programs where you tell the computer exactly what it needs to do, like sort a bunch of numbers, to now in a world where you just tell the computer to recognize images of cats and dogs, but the way in which it does it is often very hard to explain by a human just yeah. looking at the neural network, which is what I think is this very interesting frontier that we're at. And the other angle is that it's getting very inefficient from an energy standpoint. So going back to what Bundy said, if we invent nuclear fusion and we have abundance of energy, it's one thing. But the reason I was interested in this, like humans have this amazing computer that seemingly is quite energy efficient. Like it doesn't take as much energy, at least from the looks of it, compared to like how much my PG&E bill is every month to run a video game console. So like yeah. that's why I wonder, maybe there is some efficiency that is to be gained from biological systems, even if the computational capacity is not nearly as high, which I think is an interesting kind of approach there. Yeah, like yeah. simple, you know, a yeah. banana in the morning, uh, some rice and chicken in the afternoon, yeah. that will power a full human yeah. body, right? Of course, there's a lot of structure already in the body that's been encoded. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing how efficient, um, you know, not just humans, but in general, uh, living organisms are, right? Yeah. And you also skirt and, the, I think, ethical issues if you just create the brain, right? Like the issue is the, the ethical issues become very, very pertinent when you create full organisms. 
But if you say you're just creating a body part, it's now no different from like generating an artificial heart from a pig or like from even human cells to then like help somebody that has a heart disease. So I feel like if you just generate the brain as opposed to generating the rest of the body, I think it's easier for people to get behind that as a, it's just a piece of meat at that stage. It's not really like a human at that stage. So like that's the other like but, but, abstraction. But even, even, but even for that, what if that brain becomes sentient? What if that brain becomes self-aware? And, and then that brain... Right. <laughs> claims all kinds of rights, you know, and then, then, uh, you know, right. I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a hard, a hard thing to answer. I think. Yeah. It's like we are at a stage in the, um, you know, in technology, right. So where all these mm. things, if you, if it happens tomorrow, we would not be surprised. We would be like, Hey, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the right way to go. So it's, it's amazing to be in, uh, in such a, you uh, know, such a time, right. When, right. when these things could, you know, you wouldn't be too surprised if that actually happens. Yeah, inflection point. Right? So talking about unpredictability of the output. Uh, so yesterday, you know, Google demoed their AGPT <laughs> called BARD. Yeah. And then the demo went bad. And then the Google lost like uh, 8% of their market value. So literally yeah. 8% is like almost... $120 billion or, or even $200 billion lost because the, the question that they, you know, that they tried to demo gave a wrong answer. So imagine how, how difficult it is, right? So if it was easier to control the output of these systems, they would have definitely done that. $200 billion, right? Yeah. So yeah, that shows how difficult these things are. Um, that $200 billion could have know, gone towards funding more research. That's, that's the only downside <laughs> to this whole thing, right? <laughs> You know, speaking also, you know, on this, yeah. yes, on this idea of ethics uh, and doing these experiments, mm. uh, one of the movies that uh, I think it's it's a it's a great movie that brings up these questions is Gattaca. Um, uh, you might have mm. seen it. It's yep. kind of like an older older movie. It's it's titled Gattaca because yeah. that's the four letters that comprise the human DNA. A, T, G, and C. Oh, and, um, nice. and so if you watch that movie, it brings up all these questions where there are engineered humans and then there are these non-engineered humans. And, and the questions of, you know, whether a person is less of a human, more of a human, uh, whether based on whether they're engineered or non-engineered, uh, and how do we live in a society when it does happen, when it does happen that we create designer babies or designer organisms, uh, etc. How do we, how do we answer these questions? I think that's, that's an interesting movie. No, I think I, mean, I, want to see, I want to see a cricket team where like we've engineered everybody to be a, like the best batsman ever. And like maybe the last five to be the best bowlers ever, and, like beat every other cricket team in the world. I think that'd be a pretty cool cricket team to watch. Maybe it'll be boring. China would win the cricket world cup then, right? So. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's amazing. So, uh, I mean, so interesting to learn about these things and we should have you over again, Sam, and talking about sure. other yeah, definitely. I'd be available. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. to be part of this conversation. Really, really, I, you know, I, 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 I've known you guys for a while now, and uh, just, uh, just been really fun, just catching up and, and hearing from you guys as well. Great. Thank you so much for being here, Sam. This was amazing. I think like just the level yeah. of learning that we've had, and like just to like explore these topics, I think has been fascinating. Thank you.